Well, thanks very much, uh, Mayor, for this opportunity to step in. Um, so this, I think, is, is, is something where I'm particularly keen that we uh, have a chance to hear from the journalists in the room uh, who come from many different backgrounds, uh, and, and often from backgrounds where I think some of the issues that I'll discuss today are uh, even more severe, uh, in some cases much more severe, uh, than they are in, in Europe, which is uh, the part of the world that I will speak to uh, in the presentation uh, part of this. So, uh, as Mira said, the backdrop here uh, is a report that I worked with uh, 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 someone called Robert Gorba uh, from the Oxford Internet Institute and Madeleine de Kock-Buining, who's a re regulator from the Netherlands and now working at the European University Institute in Florence. Uh, the report, a little bit of uh, sponsored content, can be found online and it's called What Can Be Done? Digital Media Policy Options for Strengthening Democracy. Now, what we do in the report really is to try to pull together uh, a set of, of different areas and policy options uh, that are available should elected officials desire to, in fact, try to do something to create a more enabling environment for independent uh, professional journalism in Europe. And we, of course, hope that some of these ideas are relevant uh, outside of Europe as well. The three areas that we cover in the report uh, are these. Uh, it's, first of all, the question of freedom. If we want independent professional journalism, the question of free expression and media freedom, of course, is paramount uh, and in uh, first priority. But then two further questions that I think are also incredibly important, but I think are all premised on the existence of some form of free expression and media freedom, namely questions of funding. Uh, so if we want not just independent, but professional journalism, there is also a question of funding. And finally, one uh, that we rather grandly call the future, which is the question of where does the practice of journalism and its role in society fit into a world where digital media are developed by companies that often have other priorities than those we associate with journalism and are regulated by policymakers that also often have other priorities than those we associate with journalism. So what I wanted today to do today, just to tee off the discussion, is to just focus on the first of these. Uh, and for those who uh, have a interest in the other issues, I would refer you to the uh, full report. So I would want to talk about freedom um, and, uh, and, and not about the funding and future parts, though if people are interested in discussing that, we can, of course, take that up in the discussion part of the session today. So. Where are we uh, with free expression and media freedom? Uh, I think we can maybe just start with a global observation, uh, which is well known to the journalists in the room, uh, but I think it's worth re-upping uh, for the civilians, so to speak, uh, which is that we are basically in a terrible place uh, where uh, media freedom is declining uh, across the globe. Um, this is the, just the map the Reporters Without Borders produce every year, their World Press Freedom Index. Uh, which has documented decline year after year uh, across the world. Um, and one phrase that's been used by Joel Simon uh, is that essentially what we see globally now is something that falls uh, barely short of a war on journalism by uh, powerful politicians and private interests and organized groups in many parts of the world. And I think we just need to be upfront and explicit about this, that this is not sort of a a set of problems that, have, that uh, are driven by sort of a, a fit of absence of mind, if you will, that there is a deliberate and, 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 uh, and determined and coordinated effort in many parts of the world to 
uh, control journalism uh, and to suppress independent journalism, um, and that this is not an accident, if you will. It is by design. Um, so what I want to focus on today, as said, is Europe, which given the colors on the map, where black is the worst situation, the dark red is a bad situation, and on and on it goes, it might seem sort of slightly odd to focus on this particular region uh, of the world, which in many ways, of course, is by far the most privileged, uh, at least in some parts uh, of, uh, of Europe, uh, the levels of, uh, of media freedom and the degree to which free expression uh, is protected are without equal, really, uh, across the world. So we are, in this, as in so many other ways, extremely privileged uh, in this part of the world. That said, um, it's also the case that um, the Council of Europe, working with a set of uh, free expression organizations like Article 19 and, and media freedom organizations like Index and Censorship, has argued uh, this year in a report uh, called Democracy at Risk that the state of media freedom today in Europe is more fragile than at any point since the Cold War. Uh, so there's been a basically a non-stop decline uh, in the uh, uh, measures of uh, media freedom uh, and degrees uh, of free expression uh, across the continent uh, basically now for uh, pretty much 20 years. Um, and I will try to sort of break out some of those different uh, issues, but I think again, for those of us who are at least for a short while longer, uh, in some cases and other cases for longer than that, still citizens of the European Union, um, <laughs> It is worth recognizing that within this policy, which again, I really want to stress, is, is almost uniquely privileged uh, in the world, that if we look at the member states uh, by the level of press freedom as measured by Reporters Without Borders and the level of perceived corruption as measured by Transparency International, it is worth remembering that not everything is necessarily uh, as um, crudely put nice as they are in my native Denmark, which is one of the countries in the top uh, corner, which has high levels of press freedom and low levels of perceived corruption. Uh, in fact, in many parts of the European Union, things are rather worse uh, and have much lower levels of press freedom and much higher levels of perceived corruption, uh, including not only the problems that exist in countries that I think have often been uh, identified as sort of the poster children uh, of these uh, challenges in Europe, like Poland and Hungary, and we've been, become sort of shorthand for these issues within the European Union and the policy uh, community around the European Union, but also many other member states, like Bulgaria, for example, and Greece. Um, and if we just accept the, uh, the Reports Without Borders cutoff point of when they uh, identify a country as having uh, media freedom as signi at significant risk, then 90 million citizens across the European Union, almost one in five, live in countries with very serious threats to media freedom and, uh, as a consequence, threats to free expression. So, trouble in paradise, uh, if you will. Now, what I want to do is to just try to sort of break out what some of these uh, problems are, if you will. And again, I really want to reiterate that I am uh, very conscious that Europe is still uh, a very diverse place and also in many cases an extremely privileged place compared to most of the world uh, uh, elsewhere. 
But that said, I think it's worth just recognizing that we have some uh, severe problems, uh, uh, in some cases very severe problems, across at least three different areas. And those are the ones I will briefly talk about now before we turn to the question of what might be done. Uh, and, and again, to the uh, experiences of, uh, of people in the room and your thoughts on, on where we might go next. So the first issue really is um, the problem of impunity, uh, which is basically is a situation uh, now where we have within the European Union uh, several investigative journalists who have been murdered in cold blood, uh, Daphne Galicia in Malta and Jan Kusiak and his fiancée in Slovakia, uh, in both cases while investigating uh, uh, allegations of political corruption and connections with organized crime, often around European Union funds. Um, and uh, while uh, the situation in Malta seems to be in flow now, uh, in, in, in neither of these cases have anyone been brought to justice. Uh, so we have uh, the murder of journalists, we have problems that fall short of the murder of investigative journalists but are still very severe. We have the problems like uh, the search and seizure of information from investigative journalists in the Czech Republic, also investigating uh, political corruption and links with organized crime, uh, as well as the threats to investigative journalists in Italy uh, that have come often from organized crime, but in some instances we've also seen politicians suggest that the protection that law enforcement and the police often afford to journalists who investigate organized crime should be selectively withdrawn from some individuals um, that uh, said politicians are perhaps not great fans of. So we have this very severe set of issues that are around the threats to the physical safety of journalists even within the European Union, uh, of course then combined with uh, a set of wider challenges that fall short of physical violence but are issues of sort of routine threats and harassment uh, of journalists, of particularly of women uh, online, uh, but also the increasing uh, and sometimes increasingly enthusiastic embrace by some politicians across the European Union um, of the terminology of quote-unquote fake news uh, as a way in which they uh, attack uh, the journalistic profession as a whole and the uh, news media as a whole and suggest that they uh, are not neither independent nor professional. Um, so we see several heads of government uh, in the European Union as well as many major politicians having embraced this, including of course in some cases in Western European countries as well, like in Germany where the phrase Lügenpresse, uh, the lying press, is used by the uh, far-right populist party and other critics of the established media. So I think this is the first set of problems that we face, uh, and again, I'm not suggesting the problems are equally severe in my native Denmark as they are in some other parts of the Union, but I think we need to recognize they're happening within the European Union, uh, with its commitment in the second article of the European Union Treaty to protecting the fundamental rights of its citizens, including free expression, which is the right to uh, both impart, so express things freely, but also receive information, including from journalists. The second set of problems that we discuss in the report, and again, I think uh, these are problems that are often more severe elsewhere in the world, but it's worth recognizing they exist within the European Union as well, are problems of media capture. So the term media capture essentially suggests a situation where um, media that may profess to be independent and operating in the interests of their audiences, uh, perhaps even the public as a whole, 
are in fact instruments of organized interests, whether political or commercial, um, and used primarily as instruments to defend and advance these interests. Um, if you will, the difference between independent professional journalism and journalism that is a handmaiden uh, to organize interest of various sorts. Now, I realize that, that people will have different views on, on these things, and Noam Chomsky has sold rather a lot of books arguing that all media are captured uh, and essentially uh, uh, subject to some sort of imperial capitalist nexus. Um, and I think, you know, you know, he's a smart guy. Uh, there is something to some of the criticisms made, though I suppose that a book that argues that there is no meaningful distinction between the Soviet newspaper Prada and the New York Times uh, is a book that can't be accused of excessive nuance. Um, um, so Simplify and Exaggerate may have worked at MIT as well um, as in uh, many parts of journalism. What is media capture? Um, I think essentially it's useful here to think about the way in which uh, Marius Dragomir uh, from the Central European University, parenthetically, um, an interestingly located institution for <laughs> which to uh, uh, um, uh, and relocated institution uh, to discuss issues of capture. Uh, Marius has broken down, if you will, sort of four elements of the ways in which media uh, uh, across Europe uh, in some countries are increasingly captured by organized political and commercial interests, often, of course, working in uh, concert. The first step really is uh, what Marius describes as regulatory capture, uh, where the uh, independence of the regulatory process is compromised, where media regulators uh, or competition authorities are captured by the ruling party uh, in ways that mean that uh, rules that are meant to be general and universal are selectively applied to reward supporters and punish critics uh, of the ruling party. So the first step normally is regulatory capture through the replacement over time uh, of the boards and executives of regulatory agencies with people loyal to the regime uh, of a particular country. The second step uh, normally is uh, to secure political and often direct government control of what would pass under the name of public service media, where of course, again, we need to recognize that in much of Europe, while these entities are organized in the same industry association, the European Broadcasting Union, as the BBC, and its counterparts, ULE in Finland, and DR in Denmark, and so on and so forth. In fact, these are often state broadcasters uh, under the direct control of the government of the day. Um, and this is, uh, is, is, again, sort of the second step that Marius identifies as media capture, one in which nominally independent organizations that will often still sort of publicly proclaim their independence of the government are, in fact, brought under tight control through governance structures and funding arrangements that gives the government of the day the direct upper hand and the ability to intervene directly or indirectly in editorial um, uh, processes. The third step then, if you have uh, control over the regulators and you have control over the state media, is uh, to turn to the private sector. Um, and the classical tool here, and I know this will be uh, signally familiar to uh, many of the journalists in the room uh, from other parts of the world, is the use of state financing as a control tool, um, a situation in which um, state advertising uh, is used to reward those media that are pliant uh, and withdrawn from media that forget their place uh, and, and have the... Um, 
the uh, impossible arrogance to, in fact, sometimes break stories that may not uh, be uh, to the liking uh, of those in power. Uh, and state finance, of course, can be other things too. Uh, can be ben you know uh, loans on beneficial terms that are then not uh, uh, ever repaid that prop up the operations of, of media that seem private and independent, but are in fact uh, increasingly reliant on, um, the, on resources that are under the direct control of the government of the day. So again, private sector too can be brought to heel. And finally, uh, of course, uh, if the first three steps are deemed insufficient, um, the direct takeover uh, of media uh, ownership uh, control, where previously independent news media are taken over either directly by political actors uh, or more commonly by politically aligned private owners uh, who are uh, aligned with the governing party, again oligarchs and politicians working together. And here the um, profits or more often losses of these seemingly private and independent news media are often trivial compared to the rewards that governments can bestow on these private owners. Uh, through government contracts or through selective enforcement of regulation and the like. So a situation in which if you are an oligarch and you operate in politically sensitive business areas, and many business areas of course are sensitive, it may make perfect sense to acquire a newspaper or two uh, to make friends with the regime and you will be handsomely compensated for any losses you may incur by other means, uh, an implicit uh, quid pro quo, if you will. The problems of media capture, I think, are very real and severe in some parts of the Union, but I think these are, like the most severe uh, problems of impunity and, and, and physical threats, um, not universal across Europe, but particularly pronounced in some of the member states uh, in, uh, in the Mediterranean and some of the member states uh, in, in parts of Eastern Europe. The final uh, issue I want to, to speak to um, is one I think is much broader and, and also uh, relevant in much of Western and Northern Europe, and it's the issue of a deteriorating legal environment for independent professional journalism. I do not want in any way to suggest that these three problems are equally severe um, or, again, equally pronounced everywhere, but I think it is worth recognizing that even in those member states where the first two problems are very limited or perhaps almost entirely absent, um, the third can still be a problem. And what I mean by this essentially is sort of three things, if you will. Um, the first is that we have a, a large number of European Union member states, um, including many in the North and in the West, where um, defamation, criminal defamation laws are still in place, against, running against the case law of the European Court of Human Rights. Um, and these are situations where, um, and some of these are being dismantled, but we have a, a large debt, if you will, that we are carrying with us from a rather different legal environment in the past, where, for example, uh, defamation uh, is punished more harshly if the victim is a public official, or where you can be charged with defamation if you insult a foreign head of state insult. This is, of course, a case uh, in Germany not so long ago uh, where uh, uh, Erdogan was unhappy uh, with a comedian uh, who had expressed himself rather crudely about him. Um, and we have similar issues that go beyond criminal defamation laws that are also still countries in Europe 
where blasphemy is a criminal offense. So we think we have sort of a debt we carry with us from the 20th century that has often not in practice been enforced by courts, but are still in the books. And the reason this matters in part is not just sort of the sort of um, a rationalist desire to clean up our act, um, but also that if you think about what the world will look like if we move uh, to a future where private companies like Facebook and Google increasingly are tasked with enforcing legal restrictions and free speech automatically and at scale and at pace, and if these legal restrictions and free speech include laws that have for a long time not in, in fact been enforced, what will this look like? Uh, if Facebook or Google are, are tasked with enforcing, for example, uh, uh, the criminalization of blasphemy or insult to foreign heads of state. So we have a debt that I think we haven't cleared yet, but we also have new issues, and secondly, which is essentially is that um, the same way that some companies uh, have uh, grown very fond uh, of large-scale data extraction and data collection and found that this is an extremely lucrative and powerful uh, business model, it's also clear that many states are very fond of large-scale data extraction and data collection. And we have increasingly across uh, the EU in several member states, including France and the UK, to just take a few examples from Western Europe, uh, states uh, seeking very extensive powers of mass surveillance uh, with few, if any, protections uh, for journalists to protect their sources, for example. Uh, of course, we had a particularly spectacular case of that in this country uh, with uh, the Snowden revelations spearheaded by The Guardian and the response of the Secret Services uh, here. Uh, if you go to Alan Rusbridge's office at LMH, you can still find the hard drive uh, that the spooks uh, asked him to destroy. Um, and finally, we also have, of course, uh, new laws being passed, um, of which there are a range uh, that uh, range from things like the uh, proposed legislation around, or, or soon to be proposed legislation around online harms in the UK, but also more broadly things like the European Union's own directive on combating terrorism, where very vaguely phrased uh, uh, rules are used to criminalize forms of expression that uh, I think we are yet to see whether it will be used to chill free expression and go after independent news media. So I think we have a number of new problems uh, that are also present in Western Europe. Okay. Um, I want to briefly just recognize that in addition to this sort of litany of problems, it's also worth just recognizing there are some positives uh, that I will just briefly uh, mention before turning to what we might do about some of the problems that I uh, have identified very quickly. Um, I think it's positive just to recognize that um, the European Commission has embraced the advice of the high-level group on online disinformation to insist that problems of disinformation should be addressed within a framework of fundamental rights that protect free expression. Uh, and that the protection of free expression is not limited to statements that are correct um, and includes expression that may be shocking, offensive, or disturbing. So I think that's pretty important, and I can say, as someone who was part of the process, this was not a given at all. Uh, secondly, I think it's important to recognize that the European Union has committed in the what is so uh, enticingly called the Public Sector Information Directive, I know you've all been reading that late at night, um, 
to create a more overarching framework for government-to-business data sharing that means that journalists will have more access to public data and open data across the Union. And finally also that the European uh, Union uh, has uh, first passed in the European Parliament and adopted uh, two months ago now by the European, by the Council of Ministers, a new whistleblower protection framework that I think is quite important also to ensure that journalists in fact have sources that they can do, go to and that these whistleblowers uh, uh, enjoy forms of protection that are not in place in every member state and are not often not in place for corporate whistleblowers either, for example. So I think there are some positives here, but that said, I think the problems are also quite severe. So what we do in the report essentially is um, that we just identify a couple of things, and I, this is where I think we should open it up for people's own experience, but also your thoughts on where we might go from here. Just a sort of a couple of things that could be done uh, if policymakers want to address uh, these uh, issues. Um, the first essentially is um, that there is an implementation gap right now. I mean, all the European Union member states are already committed through existing international human rights law, but also through the European Union Treaty itself to protect media freedom and free expression. And when they don't, they're falling short of commitments they've taken on. Right? So there is an implementation gap. Uh, now, I realize history is full of examples of well-meaning Oxford academics who tell other people they should be nicer, so um, is, there, is there something more tangible, perhaps, that could be done rather than suggesting that policymakers should, as a general rule, try to do what they say uh, that they will do um, rather than just say it? Uh, well, I think there is a second possible step that could be taken within the European Union itself, which is um, to tie the suggested annual rule of law review uh, which should include, in, in, in my view, a focus specifically on free expression and media freedom to access to EU funds. Uh, if you don't honor the commitments that are taken on in Article 2 of the European Union Treaty, including protecting free expression and media freedom, why should you have access to EU regional development funds, for example? I think this is a concrete mechanism that could be put in place to ensure that we, are, that we supplement the existing uh, 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 means that are available which is what's called Article 7, which requires essentially uh, a consensus in the Council of Ministers um, with a tool that is more frequent and doesn't rely on consensus in the Council of Ministers. So I think these are two things. And then I think the third thing really is uh, to um, look at the questions that are around the future, if you will, and to think about how we regulate the digital media space in a way that builds on the UN's so-called rocky principles for business and human, right, human rights, which suggests that private enterprise has a responsibility to protect, respect, and remedy human rights problems uh, that they encounter in the course of doing business, and ensure that there is some form of independent oversight as to whether the companies that increasingly own and operate much of the infrastructure for free expression uh, are, in fact, doing that. So with that, um, the report is available online for those who are interested more, but I look forward to the discussion that we will be having here. Thank you very much, Rasmus. Thank you.